This podcast was recorded on Thursday, September 26th, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or change. All right, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here today. This is Jeff Sherman with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And we have a special guest from us dialing in directly from the Cayman Islands, Raul Powell. Welcome, Raul. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah, and so, Raul, you are the CIO and co-founder of Real Vision. And what we find interesting about Real Vision is the amount of guests you get on there. I mean, you have some top names, great thinkers. You put together great content. But I think what we really liked the most was your mission statement. And the mission statement said, you're on a mission to disrupt the whole damn system and change the face of financial media. What prompted you to want to create that initiative and start uh, thinking about giving a new media outlet for folks in the financial world? Yes, and my background is I was at Goldman Sachs where I started and ran the hedge fund sales business and equities and equity derivatives. I then moved across to the dark side and started and managed a global macro hedge fund for GLG Partners, which was the largest hedge fund firm in Europe at the time, and then opted out of the rat race in 2005 and moved to the Mediterranean coast of Spain, where I started writing macroeconomic uh, research and strategy for the world's most famous hedge fund managers, um, sovereign wealth funds, family offices, that kind of stuff. And it was in that period when I was when I moved to Spain that the financial crisis came along. And I was one of the people who at the, was very much at the center of the financial system. I kind of knew everybody involved, and we knew what was going on, and I was predicting and writing about what was happening. That was a, you know, for a lot of people, it was a big shock. For many of us, it was less of a shock. The European crisis in 2012, when I was there, was, again, not a shock for most of us in financial markets who were at the center of the system, but so many people didn't understand that being in Spain at the time to see how extraordinarily damaging that was, you know, seeing countries like Cyprus where they bailed in and took the money from the depositors in the banks or where, you know, the Spanish... And people forget about that, about the Cyprus bail-in. That, that's something that, you know, aren't really on the lips and people thinking about it anymore. And it was so big. It was so important that in Spain, we got to the point where, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I had to buy a generator because we were worried we may lose electricity because the banking system, the ECB gave them, gave them $10 billion, forced them to take it over a weekend because they didn't think the banks would survive the next day. I mean, that's the situation. But anyway, what, what happened is, is people come up to me and say, why didn't we know? Friends of my parents or friends of friends, why didn't we know about this? And that's that really uncomfortable with me because, you know, I'm kind of in the business of communicating but I couldn't reach a broad enough audience with doing what I did to be able to warn people what was coming. And I thought there needs to be a better way. And that's when I started realizing that there was an opportunity as the, the whole kind of video TV industry was getting disrupted by video on demand, that basically it meant that anybody could become an entrance into that market and could use video, much like financial newsletters in the past were used for subscription businesses, that you could reach large audiences. 
So to democratize the very best financial intelligence became our mission. And we realized that we could do it really well by making video and just going through my Rolodex of friends and people I knew from the industry and saying, listen, will you come on and talk to people about what's on your mind, what you're thinking of? So it's very peer-to-peer, it's long-form, and it really is an unparalleled platform. I know Jeff Dunlack's been on a few times as well, um, and it just gives people a real avenue. There's no sensationalism, no sound bites. nobody's trying to lead them down a path. We just want to have an open discussion of what's on people's minds, what the risks, rewards, opportunities are. So that's really what we've gone and done. We've created the Netflix of finance. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, that's what we try to do here as well. Probably not as successful as what you're doing there. But we've been long-term readers of um, Grant Williams and his his letter of uh, Things That Make You Go Home and uh, just all, all kinds of the talent you put together to do that. And so what, what do you see different about this media outlet versus when you wrote you, when you write your letter, the uh, global macro investor? What do you see as the differences here? Is it just still trying to communicate the same ideas, getting it out to a different distribution channel? Or how do you think about it? Yeah, so global macro investor is me. So it's basically my thought process. And people are, are just paying for access to me. That's essentially what that business is. And it's a very expensive very flatteringly so, it's an expensive business and you know it's a restricted membership for that. So it's for larger asset managers and uh, people who can afford that kind of service. Rubik's is the opposite end of the spectrum. A, it's not about me. I just happen to be one of the people that appears on it. What it is, it's a conduit for all of these great minds. So we don't have an editorial bias. You know, in Global Macro Investor, I have my bias, which is my back macro view and my framework. Rubik's has nothing to do with that. It, what it is, is a platform the information. So we allow anybody to come on as long as they are credible and have a intelligent, cohesive, coherent framework, we'll let them come on and talk. We, we appreciate different views. We want people to understand that there is nuance to the market. We also want to understand that nobody's right all the time either. Nobody should expect that. So it's a real platform for real discussion of views and ideas. And that's what's so revolutionary about it, because that really doesn't exist. Yeah, and so when you do that, so you've been publishing uh, some videos as of late. What are the top-of-mind topics? What, what are the big heated debates, not the uh, the things that, that, let's just say, that the mainstream media appears to be missing or not uh, focusing on for uh, the investor out there? Yeah, so I think the, the really big thing that we've been on is the recession theme. That, you know, that the mainstream media is, again, as ever, very slow to catch on the increasingly high probability that we're going into a global recession and the U.S. too. So I think that's a, a theme that caught on in Real Vision earlier than most. And we, we have a lot of people that appeared on that. Other ones that we've got, you know, the, the rise of cryptocurrency is a very large part of what we see coming as well. There's also the parallel discussion about gold and the future of, of um, central banking and how that plays into that. So we're seeing a lot of that. We've got a lot of China narrative as well that's out there. A lot of people coming to us to China and say, listen, this is a real problem, Hong Kong and China. There's a chance of a um, you know, big devaluation of the currency. There's a chance of further retaliation in the U.S. So, so these are some of the really big themes out there. Yeah, so those, those are things that are very top of mind for us as well, especially being bond investors. And so let me pick on a couple of those and let's now put on your hat as the global macro investor and let's dig deeper into those. So let's just sure. start with the crypto and the gold theme. And really, let's interweave that into the central bank 
hubris or philosophy that these folks have had. How connected do you think that is uh, with negative interest rate policy, lack of trust in the system, and kind of what is your framework for thinking about the role of central bankers as we move forward into 2020 and beyond? So what I've done is I've taken the logical steps of following what they've been doing and knowing that incrementally they're moving further towards where Japan is. Japan's leading. So Japan now owns most of its own bond market, most of its ETF market, which is a large part of its equity market. So that's where Japan is going. In the next recession, it's almost mathematically impossible for Japan not to end up owning its entire bond market. So what we get to there is what's known as a debt jubilee. Do the central bank write off the government debt? And what is the outcome of that? Does it collapse the currency? Does it create larger inflation? What, what is the outcome? And what is the aftermath? Europe is one step behind, but we've already seen that yeah, they're going to more negative rates and more quantitative easing, but it's not working. And they've got a banking system that's frozen and broken. So what you've got is the propensity for them to keep trying more things on the path. And then with Christine Lagarde in at the head of the ECB, the chances are we're going to move towards massive fiscal stimulus in some way or some sort of fiscal alliance across Europe. So that's another thing that is generally a game changer, particularly for currencies. Yeah, but maybe the fiscal alliance would help instead of this uh, sole reliance on on there being just the magical bullet of monetary policy, right? Well, the point being is I think most of us who've been around for a while understand that you are pushing on a string now. So you're getting to the point of ridiculous outcomes where the chance of something really bad breaking, truly bad breaking, is high. You know, we're talking in this situation, we're talking about does the system of fiat currency break? Um, are, we, are we talking about, you know, the ability for governments to fund themselves? Does that break things? Just really big questions. Now, we don't know the answer to most of this, but we do know that there are two instruments that potentially offer us a solution. One is gold, one is Bitcoin. One is the history of the last few thousand years, and the other is the potential future. And they both act like options to me on something bad happening. And that's how they trade right now as well. Because even the gold and the dollar are going up at the same time. And it's telling you that gold is pricing in a different outcome. That's right. And I think gold in every other currency is setting kind of new uh, local highs as well, or at least in some cases, all-time highs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I track it against, I have a, a GMI gold index, which is gold against 27 different currencies, excluding the US dollar. And it's at all-time highs. I mean, it's exploding higher. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that because you talked about a debt jubilee and you were, I think you were focused on Japan there. And so is, is the debt jubilee something that it needs a coordination globally because of the cross-held nature of these sovereign bonds? And under your premise here, I think it's that, that the Bank of Japan ends up owning all of their own government debt and therefore it's easy to do. But however, with the, the jubilee idea, is it the fact that we have this reset and really, how, how do you see that playing out if indeed it does happen? I mean, that, it seems like a dire thing for the entire financial system. Is it dire or is, it, is the, the shorter, shorter medium-term implication dire 
but the longer term in- implication is much better. I, you know, I don't know. Well, I don't, I I'd almost take the, the, what you said there as the latter, because if you look at the history of defaults through certain, and, and default is a jubilee, right? Yeah. You look at how the emerging markets have done historically, right? And they've been able to default. And a lot of countries, even developed world today, have defaulted on their debt historically. It gets you in a better position, right? Just a restructuring is the, is the nice way of saying it, right? Yeah, I, I kind of agree. And Japan is in that situation where it doesn't have foreign lenders. So that's, it's pretty easy for Japan to be the kind of ex- controlled experiment. But, you know, once one person does it, clearly the whole world has to go to it. <laughs> because Japan's currency is probably going to fall 30, 40, 50%, which is very good for Japan. But the rest of the world cannot deal with the third largest currency falling 50%. So there has to be an organized kind of shift of regime. And I, I think you're hearing it from... Mark Carney of the ECB, you're hearing it from Ben Mark Carney from the BOE, and those guys are telling you that they need to walk away from the dollar-based system and that they're already looking at some sort of stablecoin crypto outcome, um, which I think is potentially all part of this, having to change, create a new parallel system to walk into, because right now, the chance of this ending well is, is not high. So on, with that very pleasant introduction, <laughs> <laughs> let, let's move here to the U.S. There was you know, many talks during the summer of 2019 here that there would be perhaps negative interest rate policy in the U.S. and we'd see negative yielding bonds here in the U.S. What do you make of that? Do you think the U.S. gets to that level? Uh, are we just on that? Are we just that second step removed? Uh, you see the, the Japanese model. Uh, the euro, uh, the eurozone is following that, or at least the ECB is following that model too. Negative interest rates, bond buying. The U.S. Do we go that direction? I mean, demographics, what you see here. I mean, we're, we're, everything's really behind. You know, we're we're just like that next step behind Europe. I would argue. Uh, but that's the key word is demographics, right? Japan went to negative yields before everybody else, or it went to zero yields before everybody else, to be exact, because they're an older population. Followed by Switzerland, next oldest population. Followed by Europe, next oldest population. And next is the US. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, and it's driven by the massive amount of saving that has to go on that drives bond yields lower and the different changes in consumption patterns once you have an older population. So for me, if I just as a very simple term, I look around the world, and I'm an investor, and I look at bond yields around the world, unhedged, and the US is almost double that of the next highest country in the world, which is Australia. So in which case, uh, yeah, major country in the world. So in which case, why on earth would you not own US government bonds? Why would you not pour capital in the US? The US stock market's been outperforming. So this is creating a huge problem for the dollar, because the dollar's being driven higher by this, by this dynamic that everybody knows the US yields are too high. They need to go to zero at least, and I think negative, for the world to start to basically be able to readjust to this ridiculous dollar because the rest of the world has borrowed $15 trillion and uh, the dollar going up, it's, it's a real problem for them with the dollar going up and yields higher than ever, everywhere else in the world. The carry is so expensive. So do you think that the, uh, the Fed, have they've started to embark on this cutting regime, uh, do you think it continues all the way down to zero? Do we take some pauses along the way? Uh, how is your framework for thinking about the reaction function of the Fed? Yeah, so the most expertise I have is in uh, rate cutting cycles. That's really where, um, you know, having run a large hedge fund over that period and everything else, you kind of know how this plays out. 
And interest rates generally take a long time to go up and come down very fast. It's usually within an 18-month period from peak to trough. Um, the market always underprices the euro-dollar market, euro-dollar futures market, or the front end of the curve. Let's say the two-year note always underpriced this. So I think the chances are the Fed looked like they're too slow right now, hence why the yield curve is still inverted and or you know oscillating around zero. But I think the moment the Fed actually has to move, then you know the yield curve steepens as rates come down to zero. And I think probably two-year notes trade through Fed funds to a negative level uh, because it's not driven by policy then. It's just the supply and demand dynamic that we've seen everywhere else around the world. So yes, I, I think I think rates go negative in the US. Well, you heard it here first, right? So that's <laughs> good. So in under that scenario, what happens? Does the Fed continue to pull rate their policy rate below zero? Or do they just, you know, ratchet up the amount of quantitative easing and bond buying they do? Uh, how do you think that the Fed uh, behaves around this uh, zero policy rate that you that you see at some point in this cycle? Yeah, so fascinating because we've got an election in the middle of this. So basically, everyone's paralyzed from doing anything until that election. And then after the election, whoever gets voted in is probably going to hit the nuclear fiscal stimulus button. So, that seems like the path of least resistance, given uh, everything we see in the election, yes. Of course. So both sides would do that. And the, both sides would get the central banks to underwrite it. So this is you know, what people have been talking about, the MMT, modern monetary theory style approach, where you can actually finance governments more than you think you can, and the, the, the bond market won't react. You know, who knows? It's a huge experiment, but I think the currency reacts. But we're not at that moment yet. And that's the dangerous point. Is the Fed is slow. They're dragging their heels. The rest of the world is cutting. The dollar's going higher every day. So there's going to be a point where the Fed are going to have to cut very quickly because there's some other structural problems in the money markets going on right now as well. They're going to have to cut very quickly to, to zero. And then it's probably still in a world where the rest of the world is pretty slow too. So fiscal stimulus may be the only answer. And it would have to be gigantic because it's going to be financed by printing by the central bank. So it's a whole new world. And again, another reason why you're quite happy to own gold in this environment. It really just sounds like a horrible self-reinforcing cycle at that point. But I want to go back on the negative interest rate policy. And let's just say the crystal ball that you have is correct and the U.S. eventually gets there. All major economies get there. What are some of the longer-term ramifications of having negative interest rate policy across major economies? Because we hear the talk about how the financial system, namely banks, aren't equipped to deal with negative rates. It just throws off the entire model. Yeah, I mean, you can see that in Japan and you can see it in Europe. The banking system cannot deal with negative rates. The other problem is, is the real truth is the really big issue is the banks can be propped up by the central bank and they can be kept as zombies, but Japanese have been masters of doing that in the past. The really big problem, the dirty secret, is nobody, no pension is going to meet its liabilities. Simple as that. It is impossible to meet your liabilities with negative yield because the fixed income that needs to be paid out to retiree is basically impossible. And if we're not careful, most of these pension systems will have gone will go into the next recession with far too much risk in corporate credit and equity and not enough government bond risk. So therefore, they're going to end up with big black holes from the losses that usually come in a recession, but just as people retire. And then on the other side, bond yields are going to go from 
you know, 2% to negative 1%, and nobody, the, the, the retirement thing is broken. So, you know, my, my guess is that the, the government are going to have to underwrite the pension system at some point, but we just haven't got there yet. But that's, that's the big danger here for me. Yeah, but isn't that just part of the whole MMT thing? I mean, really, the way out of this is that there has to be just more and more money created, a la either some form of inflation or devaluation of the currency or both. Typically, those are those, those tend to be related in order to solve these these issues. It's like we're just we, – we see the problem. We know it's happening and we're just kind of just saying, hey, let's just paper over it today and hope it gets better. I, I think you're dead right. I think you're dead right. Now, the question is, you can do it with Argentina. You could probably do it with Greece. But you can't do it with Italy and you can't do it with Japan. US. And you definitely can't definitely do it to the US, which is the largest market, right? I think you've sequenced them in right. three, second, and first biggest uh, debt markets, right? That's right. So what you've actually got is a situation where we could, the, 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 the current financial system and how it's set up could not take that. So that's the problem because they all look at themselves and say, in isolation, maybe MMT will work for us. The problem is that they are not in isolation. They're in a global system of competition amongst, uh, for capital and they, if they all move at the same time, then we don't have a system. And I think that's very interesting. I, I think that is the logical conclusion. It's one of the reasons I'm very interested in, in, uh, in Bitcoin itself, because it does offer kind of a parallel opportunity for trusted ownership of assets and a bunch of other things that become a big problem in a legacy system as we've got right now, where it's not obvious that the answers are achievable any longer. Yeah, I mean, uh, it makes a lot of sense. And it's one thing we've said uh, that maybe in the next recession, maybe it isn't treasuries that are the best performing thing. Maybe it is these alternative type of currencies. And, you know, we can go, as you said, the 2,000-year the history of gold or even longer. Or is it crypto or is it some combination? But it sure doesn't look good for this existing system if indeed uh, we continue on these paths. So l- let's let's try to flip it around a little bit. Let's say, how do we find some positive spots in this uh, economy right now? Whether that's the global economy, the U.S. based economy, uh, wh- where are you seeing pockets of opportunity, if there are indeed any? So look, there's not a lot of opportunity right now because the world is still highly correlated. It's still extremely global. We're becoming less global as we know, but we're extremely global. So you know. China's slowing down, Europe's slowing down, Australia's slowing down, Brazil's slowing down, Argentina's a mess. There is nowhere to turn. So you're not going to find anything that's obviously growing and obviously strong. But I, a while ago, I did some research and I looked at the problems that we face in the world, which is debt and demographics, essentially. And I looked at it and I, I got rid of all the countries with bad demographics, got rid of all the countries with too much debt and looked for high savings, young populations. And basically, you look at the map and the whole world changes. Suddenly, the map is India at the center of the world, all of the countries around the Indian Ocean. Um, the Middle East, I would assume, too, right? Up to Iran, all the way across to Morocco, all the way down to Indonesia. They're basically the young Islamic, generally Islamic, apart from Singapore, India, South Africa, um, generally Islamic nations that happen to be trading countries that have traded with each other for 5,000 years. So it's the monsoon trading winds, and I call it monsoon. Those countries are entirely different. They're 180 degree opposite. It's basically like having the ability to invest all over again in the United States in the 1960s. That's what you've got elsewhere in the world. 
So, you know, we have to get rid of our own investment biases and what we think we know about the world. And we need to start looking for, okay, where is the real opportunity in the world and, and how, how do we capture that? And the real opportunity is in those economies. Now, within the U.S., sure, there are opportunities to be had. I mean, I, I still like bonds, for example, but that trade won't go on forever. Um, and then it becomes not a very interesting trade and we're stuck like Japan with no real bond market either. So we're looking for, okay, what are the other drivers? And demographics are a great driver. Technology is a very interesting driver. Um, you know, it, it is cyclical and it will all blow up and we'll have a, you know, a bear market out of technology. But again, there's so much going on in the technological change in the U.S. It's truly extraordinary. So there are opportunities all over the place. I wanted to shift gears a little bit, but keeping on the macro theme. And one of the, the more prominent areas thus far has been with uh, China. I mean, take your pick on the conversations around that. We can talk about Hong Kong, its neighbors, you know, Taiwan. Uh, Japan, Korea, or we can bring it to tariff talk, but just overall the the global importance of China and, and what you're seeing there. Yeah, at a big picture level, China made a tactical mistake um, coming into the WTO, plus with capital coming in from abroad, they decided that the answer was to follow the Western model and the Asian tiger model, which was borrow money and rob future growth. So we had one of the largest marginal changes of growth to the global economy we've ever had as China came in and exploded on the scene, driven by debt. And so we had an enormous, very rapid, extraordinary expansion. And then the Chinese, because it's a relatively closed economy, thought that they could deal with it. Now, that experiment is yet to play out. I've never seen anybody deal with a problem of that sort before without it blowing up the banking system and a whole bunch of other stuff, the currency as well. So the next phase was we'd had a couple of these cycles in China and they managed to paper over the cracks, but now they've got a situation where it's, it's really unwieldy. Their population is now plummeting in, <laughs> because they're, well, it's not plummeting yet. The age of the population is accelerating. It's becoming very rapidly the oldest population in the world. And then it sort of starts shrinking as well. So all of its tailwinds have disappeared. The debt buildup can't happen any longer. And now the Chinese have looked around and they've borrowed far too many U.S. dollars, of which they can't get enough. They've got too much debt. They've excess capacity. And so they started slowing their economy down. And that slowed the rest of the world down because they were the marginal buyer of everything. Much like the U.S. had been for the last 40 years, China had become so. So now we have to basically price out Chinese growth out of the global economy from a rate of change where at some point it was probably growing at 15%. You never know with Chinese numbers. And now they claim it's growing at 6% or whatever. It's probably going, it's probably growing at 2 which is really not replacement for an economy like China. So we've got that going on. We've got a problem with um, the fact that with global trade slowing down, it feels like their currency is very much under pressure. They're running out of liquid reserves to defend the currency. They're desperate for dollars. They used Hong Kong as their avenue for dollars. They've shot themselves in the foot because of the situation in Hong Kong. They forced foreign capital to flee Hong Kong too. So they've shut themselves out of the Hong Kong funding markets as well. And now we've got a potentially big problem on our hands that, that somewhere down this track within this kind of global recession theme of which China's at the center of it, that they could lose control of their currency and maybe lose control of Hong Kong's currency or have 
and all have social unrest issues within Hong Kong itself that require more extreme outputs from China, which would be you know, terrible for Hong Kong and terrible for, for kind of global capitalism, I guess. Given that setup, does this encourage them to want to negotiate better with the U.S. when it comes to trade and really instead of going through and redefining the supply chains throughout the, let's say, the Eastern world or at least through the Asian world, uh, try to come back to the table here in the U.S.? Or do they continue to be staunch in their positioning and just try to continue as, as the status quo? So, you know, there's a number of ways of looking at this. And the Chinese are very clever in how they look at this, too. They'll also realize that the U.S. has a very weak hand, which is the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is something that they can beat China over the head with. But in the end, if the dollar is too strong, it's kind of catastrophic for the U.S. as well. Yeah, it's catastrophic for everybody, right? That's right. So if the Chinese can suffer more than the U.S., you know, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to know what these outcomes are. But I'm not sure that, A, the U.S. wants to agree a trade deal because it's a much bigger thing than that. It's actually more of a Cold War um, to try and hold China back. And I'm not sure China wants to agree a deal. I don't think we can go back to where we were. And I think that somebody's going to force each other's hands. Chinese know that they have an election coming up in, in, in the U.S. And they can... They can at least wait another 12 months or so, right? Exactly. Now, does that mean they let go of their currency a bit faster? You know, is it trading nine you know, by, by March or something? Quite possible. So on that front, too, you mentioned it's kind of like a Cold War. When I think about that, I think of it as being a technological war. Isn't that really the war that we're fighting here? It's not necessarily as much trade as it is. It's intellectual property. It's technology. It, it, it really is. That's the epicenter of, of the discussions here. The WTO was a big thing, and there was a fantastic interview with the James Goldsmith, um, the famous kind of uh, corporate rabor cap- capitalist, who back in the 90s said this WTO is a disaster. It's going to hold out, hold out the middle classes of the West, create populism and uprising, and it's going to enrich the kleptocrats in emerging markets and not the, the average population. And he was dead right. It kind of created a huge imbalance to this world. And I think that the whole kind of globalization has been a much bigger issue than, than people realized. And now I forgot, I've lost my train of thought of where we were going with this. What was the question? Well, I was, I was talking about the epicenter of the, the purported trade war is really just an IP war, an intellectual property uh, yeah. war, so, and a technological war. So, so China had basically, with the WTO, won the trade war. They'd won um, a huge advantage in that situation, so the pushback was coming. Now, the next phase of this is not to be right over that, as you correctly point out. The next phase is, as we know, it's the, it's the te- technological change, and call it the robotization of the world, is coming, and technology is going to be super valuable to give you the advantage because human capital becomes less important than technological capital. So I think the fight is over technological capital, as you rightly say, and that is a very different change. And even warfare itself is highly unlikely to include, you know, between warfare between the U.S. and China is not going to include nuclear warheads or bombs or planes or anything of that sort. It's cyber. It's, you know, it's a whole bunch of other things. Right. Yeah, I guess I probably shouldn't use the word war. I mean, people call it the trade conflict, which... Uh 
you know, always tries to dial down that that image. And I didn't mean it from an absolute war, Cold War perspective. Um, no. But as as we think about it too, and exactly how China has set this up uh, too, is that I mean, don't aren't they very vulnerable here? Because the innovation isn't necessarily coming from within the country. Uh, it's coming from places, obviously the U.S. It's coming from Korea as well. So when they, they start to think about it, aren't they really hindering themselves too by you know, not trying to, let's say, play nice in the sandbox to, to dial down the rhetoric there? Yeah, I think you know, it is – the outcomes for everybody is quite bad in this actually. And I think that's the point. I mean the outcomes for China – are not good. The outcomes for the U.S. are not good in this. But I don't think there's enough to agree on to possibly even get to an agreement. So are we are we actually going towards more, let's say, nationalism, right? So, you know, have we seen peak globalization? Yes, I think we are, we are in the process of throwing out and changing the rules-based global order system, which was basically the U.S.-U.K. model of running the world. And I think that's changing. And that's okay. Change is not easy to deal with, so that creates problems and it creates vacuums. Because if you've got no policemen, you can see it now as Trump pulled back suddenly. We know the rise of Saudi Arabia, the rise of Turkey. People who would ordinarily have to fit in with a rules-based system now don't fit in, so they're free to operate in how in ways that they want. It's a, a very different world. Eventually, there will be a fragmentization of the world, where or a regionalization more than likely, or. It, different trading routes. You know, as I said, maybe that monster trading route with India becomes one of them. Maybe it's uh, China, China's allegiance with, let's say, Iran and Pakistan and a bunch of other countries. We don't really know where this is going. We know that China's been trying to prepare itself for a world that is not just a unipolar world with you know, the US at the center of it only, that it may be a bipolar world with China and the US, or it may be a multipolar world which I think is more likely and is more typical of how history has played out. It was really, you know, there's only few empires or, or few, few kind of systems that have lasted that have been all-encompassing. Usually there's quite a few in the place at the same time. Yeah. And so how does one think about that going forward? So, you know, you're sitting here, maybe you're advising, you know, a teenager or someone to think about the role they could play uh, in the world going forward. And, you know, when we're defining these new, let's call them shipping routes, trade lanes, I mean, I always think of, you know, the U.S. advantage of, of controlling the Panama Canal, right? That controls global trade volume, you know, uh, the Straits of Hermos when you look at the Middle East, right? Um, are those still going to be critical points um, when we think about how the world develops? Is it more just, is it a nationalistic approach where it's going to be more localized? Or I, I know it's hard to forecast that, but um, well, it, it just seems with the rise of populism, as you said, too, I think populism turns into some form of nationalism as well. I, do, I, think, I think you're right, but I think it's even harder than that to deal with. Um, it's actually global tribalism because of the internet. So if you look at how society sets itself up now, it is not done by sovereign state boundaries as much as it is by online boundaries. That's Who a great you deal point, with yeah. all, all day, every day, is actually nobody in your country necessarily. If you, you happen to be a Chihuahua lover, you hang out on the Chihuahua lover's Facebook page and the Chihuahua lover Reddit page, and you don't want to know about the Rottweiler lovers, this is what is creating societal fragmentation. So you cannot create a cohesive society in the internet age where you're, where you're creating a divisive social platform. 
So tribalism is becoming the preferred pattern. So I'm not sure even how well the sovereigns act within this. China's going to the extreme now to try and create social cohesion using technology, which is basically behavioral economics. But the problem is, is even then, Chinese can access other parts of the world. And if you're acting in the outside world, you tend to become tribal with those people too. So we are in a very, very different world. No, it's a great, great point. Um, for some reason, when you started talking about the Chihuahua lovers, I started envisioning just like the original America Online, right? There's this, you know, there would be this little area you click on, it's the Chihuahua lovers and all this stuff. And you'd mentioned that, the that, advancement of that, like that, the Reddits and things like that. But uh, I, I just see that, um, you know, it is that tribalism. And I think that's the great word to use to describe it, is you're looking for people of the same ilk, whether that's beliefs, hobbies, uh, fascinations, or whatever. And that's really what's driving things. So um, with that, I, I, let, let me ask you a personal question too. With you know, uh, you started off saying you worked at Goldman, then you went to the dark side. I thought that was pretty funny. A lot of people think Goldman is the dark side. You know, uh, GLG is a great firm, but, but Goldman's a great firm too. But what would you say is one of the most interesting moments in your career? Like, wh- what's one of those things that really stand out? It's either an aha moment, of, or what we use today, a pivot moment. What, what's something that uh, people don't really know much about you that would be very interesting there? The, the, there's two. There's the pivotal moments in my career, and then there's the pivotal moment in my learning. Two things that both in my career. Pivotal moment in my career was I was running a hedge fund business at, and I, yeah, I was no, I was running a sales business at a UK firm called James Cable, which is part of Hong Kong Shanghai Bank (HSBC), and um, I was moving a team across to NatWest, which was one of the big English banks at the time, and um, and suddenly. In that change, 120 people from Morgan Stanley joined this particular firm, and my job wasn't, didn't exist any longer, even though I was, I was running a large part of the business. And the guy said to me, what do you want to do? This was back in 1995. He said, what do you want to do, Raoul? I said, you know what, I'm quite fancy speaking to some hedge funds, because these guys had just started, you know, Tiger and Tudor and Soros were the kind of big guys that people heard of, they were legendary. And the guy just looked at me and said, yeah, sure, they're all friends of mine. He flew me out to New York the next day and sat me down with almost every single legendary hedge fund manager that there was in the world and said, right, it's up to you now. And that was, that was my career. That's amazing. That's a great story, yeah. One of the greatest opportunities was I was the guy in Europe who covered all of the hedge funds in the world. And so I got to know all of them. And so it was an extraordinary learning experience to be able to learn from Stan Druckenmiller and Paul Tudor Jones and Lewis Bacon and all of these guys to talk to them almost every day, see how they traded, see how they thought about the world. So that really formulated how I think about the world, um, and it really helped me. And then it all came together. I, started, I really understood it by 1997 when the Asian crisis came, and I was at Goldman at that point. And there I was able – Goldman was a, you know, an amazing firm where you, you really could be involved in all different parts of the business. So I would see – all of the trades that Stan Druckermiller was doing across the metals business, the FX business, the credit business, blah, blah. And you could see his mind being mapped out, how he layered into trades, how he looked at risk, how he did that, and then be able to see how people like Lewis Bacon, you know, Lewis was an extraordinary trader. Um, some of the things that he did, how clever his trade construction was, that kind of thing, so much from the, from the Asian financial, uh, the Asian crisis back in, 97, 98 was just life-changing for me, and it gave me the real experience with which I took my career forward. 
Yeah, it's just, I mean, it just sounds like a great learning platform that you've had along the way. I got to say, Raul, I'm, I'm kind of a pessimistic person by default, but this conversation about debt jubilee, crises, uh, tribalism, it's, you know, aside from the chihuahua lovers, you know, I, I feel kind of down right now. So I'm going to try to end or at least go to a pleasant uh, thought. Um, just Cayman Islands, can you talk a little bit about your decision on moving out there? Maybe it's not so pleasant in terms of a tax perspective. Uh, I mean, as a catalyst, but, <laughs> you know, let's just talk about the islands and your decision there. So as all great stories start, I was on a dive boat in the Galapagos when I met a bunch of people. Um, and I had been, I had a boyhood dream. I had two dreams in my life. One was the Mediterranean and I was living that dream. And the other was the dream of the tropical beach. And I, you know, I've been around the world diving with sharks. It's been one of the things I love and I love tropical reefs and tropical beaches. So I spent a long time lucky enough in a position, in a financial position that, that I could do something about that. And I was thinking about where I'd looked all around the world. I couldn't find anything. And on that boat in the Galapagos were a bunch of people from the Cayman Islands. And they said, you should come to Cayman. Come and visit us. And so eventually I ended up going to Grand Cayman, which is not where I really wanted to turn up. But I, but I actually turned up after that. I hopped from Grand Cayman across on the little puddle jumper plane 30 minutes away to Little Cayman, an island of 140 people, 10 miles by one mile absolute pristine nature, no crime, and just an incredible place. And the day after I landed on that island, I bought um, a piece of land on the beach and built a house. Yeah. And that's how I ended up here. Well, that that is just uh, – that sounds like a dream come true. I mean, a lot of people probably listening you know, are jealous of the, the Drucken Millers, the Bacons, and Paul Tudor Jones conversations, but – I think Sam and I are gonna, gonna sit here. It's a, it's a it's a bad day in L.A. for once. We've got clouds <laughs> in the sky. We've got rain coming. So we're gonna take your dream there, and we're gonna end it with that note. But before I let you leave, I'm gonna let you. Uh, I'm gonna have Sam introduce you to the last segment that we're gonna do uh, on the show today. And that segment is Sherman says. Well, what I'm going to do is uh, offer each of you a prompt, a different prompt, and I'm going to alternate between both of you to get top-of-mind responses. So I'm going to start out with Mr. Sherman with blockchain. Future. Raul? Libra. It's an extremely interesting potential future for the next phase of money. All right. And uh, back to Mr. Sherman with Global Economic Growth XUS. Poultry. Brent crude oil. Going down. Fed. Going down. <laughs> I like to repeat things sometimes after what people said it, and it was perfect. I, I think that's relevant. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ECB. Going down. That's a three-peat. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, hopefully this isn't going to be the fourth repeat, but uh, U.S. corporate earnings. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> you just want the same answer? Okay, I'll, I'll change Four it up. Feet. Um, <laughs> well, bottoming. <laughs> I'll try that. All right, impeachment. Irrelevant. Favorite airport. Favorite. Wow, that's a good one. Um, JFK. Actually, they treat you very well there. I don't like the way it looks at, but um, I was gonna go with like a, like I think Hong Kong is kind of cool and Singapore is kind of cool too, but. Uh, you're scratching your head. You give me your answer. No, no, no. I'm just talking. I was just thinking about the commute in from JFK. Unless oh, you're taking one of those yeah. uh, helicopter I rides take, in there, right? I would take 
I would take Little Cayman every day. <laughs> no airport security, one hut, and it's a five-minute drive to the airport, no traffic. Okay, so then my favorite airport to fly is Kapalua because I go over to Oahu. That's what I use, and it's the same kind of thing. Uh, but I, would, I, was, I was very close to saying SFO, which is a horrible airport. It's always delayed. However, the Admirals Club there has the best candy bowl in the country. And they have Swedish fish. They have all jelly these bellies, great, they have yeah, jelly. I yeah, mean, yeah. they take care of that candy bowl. So, again, it's not good for your diabetes or your diet. However, um, anyway. All right. And the last one. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, last, we get sidetracked sometimes, yeah. Raul. Sorry. All right. I, I think we all know the answer to this one, but it's on tape. So I uh, wrote it down. Favorite city to live. Huh. Favorite city to live. Mine is probably Barcelona. That's a good good city. I've only lived in a few, so I couldn't really compare, but I've traveled a lot. Barcelona is definitely in the top 10, I'd say. So, all right, Raul, thanks so much. Thanks for dialing in. Again, this is coming live from the Caymans. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty amazing technology. Uh, we should all be bullish technology for that reason. Thanks for sharing your views. Uh, for those of you that are looking for more Raul's views, you should look for him on Real Vision. Uh, if you have deep pockets, too, maybe become a subscriber to the Global Macro Investor. But we really thank you for your time, Raul, and appreciate all your commentary today. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks very much, guys, for having me. Thanks a lot. And so this is the end of Sherman Show. Uh, you can send us feedback, Show at DoubleLine.com. You can catch us on the Twitter. At Sherman Show Pod is the uh, handle there. We are up to almost 900 full uh, subscribers there. So thanks to our 250 Double Line employees for padding those stats today. Uh, you can catch us on Stitcher, uh, SoundCloud, some other stuff, iTunes, things like that. Spotify. So, Spotify. Spotify. So again, thanks everybody for tuning in, and we'll be back shortly. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, DoubleLine Capital.